0: Welcome to the francisca show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com the show where i give a voice to jewish issues topics and people i'm francisca your host welcome back to the francisca show france dance today with us we have jace ivar currently in australia thank you so much for joining us today pleasure let's start out tell us a little bit about your upbringing your background religiously and professionally
1: Sure. I was born in South Africa in Johannesburg. I was born in 1979 and I was brought up in a neighborhood that was a pretty rough neighborhood. There was a lot of black Africans that lived in the neighborhood where I was brought up. And um, I remember as a kid, if I wanted my friends to come to my place, the parents would say, no, rather you come to us because they were too scared to come to the neighborhood where I was brought up. I was brought up as a traditional Jewish person, like traditional never even kept Shabbos, like just, you know, went to Shu and all the uh, and that. But other than that, never had any real upbringing with Judaism. From 13, we moved to a bit of a better neighborhood. And I also started my first business at 13 years old, doing selling like, Self-defense products, weapons, arms, mace sprays and all that. And I had friends asking if they could work for me. And I used to sell products at the market on a Saturday and Sunday. I made good money. I dropped out of school when I was 16 years old. And the school said you can only drop out if you go and work. So I started my locksmith apprenticeship when I was 16 years old. And I did a course for four years. After doing a um, course at the age of 21, I opened up my own locksmith company. And I basically worked for about six months, never made much money when I was 21. My friends were all making good money. I was not doing that well. And I stuck it out. And about the age of 24, I opened up. or four stores locksmith shops I had 16 staff working for me and I supported my parents because my father lost his job in South Africa and being a white male of my dad's age with no um, profession it was very difficult so I supported my parents from the age of like 21 almost and I've got two sisters as well which I helped my sisters both work for me in my shops in my companies at the age of 27, I started dating a Catholic girl, Lebanese girl. She's Catholic, is very much like probably, you know, very ultra Orthodox Jews, like Catholic. They have very religious, very strong passion about their religion. And the father said, and the daughter said, if I wanted to marry her, I had to become Catholic, which is a very big step for myself. and. At that stage, my father was actually Belshuva because he almost died in hospital. So he had the black hat and beard, and he was all Chabad in that. And I guess I was thinking with the wrong head. And you know, she looked like Kim Kardashian, beautiful black hair, dark, dark skin. And I was like, wow, well, this is it. And um, anyway, I started going to church every Sunday. I had to do Catholicism classes, which I went to, catechism classes, which I went to every, uh, like once a week or something on a Thursday. And that was nine months to do the classes. After nine months, I became Catholic. I went to church. They put water in my face the bread under my tongue. And they said, now you're Catholic. I didn't feel comfortable in the church because obviously there was a lot of idols in the church and idol worshiping. And, you know, they did the sign of the cross and that. I didn't feel comfortable about that. At that stage as well, I was um, friends. Well, I had friends from school which were very how can I put it? They were, they were they owned businesses, but they weren't honest in their businesses that they owned. And they were very they, they were people you didn't want to cross. They were very um, gangstery type of people behind the scenes. And they also asked me to do certain things for them that was that was not like honest or good and i like was like, can you that.
0: share or is it criminal yeah
1: so basically they owned a supermarket business and their supermarket business was in a black neighborhood which was cash most of them spent cash and their supermarket business that they had opened up what
0: they needed they did, security systems it, for the cash
1: they they needed that yeah and yeah. and no, no, and, and I had a little locksmith set up in their supermarkets. So I set up a little locksmith shop in their supermarket. I did the cameras for them in there. But what they did was they used to say to the drivers that delivered trucks of all the goods to the supermarket, tell your boss that you got hijacked. We'll give you, if a truck was worth a couple hundred thousand dollars, we'll give you $20,000. And then, boom, off you go. And that's what they used to do. So truck drivers used to come there, offload all the stock, Say so they got hijacked. They paid them cash. They used to speak to like other people that had jet skis and say, you know what? If you want to be our friend, we'll protect you. Give us the jet ski. Say it got stolen. We'll give you like five hundred bucks for the jet ski, and it was worth twenty thousand dollars. And I used to go and pick up a jet ski for them and bring it to them.
0: You were the fake hijacker.
1: The fake hijacker. I'll, I'll go. Well, I'll, I'll go there, pick up the stuff for them, and bring it back to them and their father-in-law, so there were three Greek brothers and one Greek sister. And the one brother's father-in-law owned a big security company, like a guarding company where they had security guards and they had like 40 security guards working for them. And these guys were very protected. They were, people feared, feared these guys. So they had ways of getting lots of money and they were worth lots of money. And I was helping them in certain ways like that as well. And um, I was making a lot of cash from them, from our business, because I had locksmith shops and security businesses. Um, but I did work as well for like banks. I did work for a lot of banks. I did work for diamond factories. Um, when I was dating the Catholic girl, I did work in Botswana, which is near South Africa, for six months. I did work at a diamond factory in Botswana which was unbelievable there, um, really, really great.
0: Hold on, are we done talking about the girl? Did you end up getting engaged?
1: With the, with the Lebanese girl, no. We, well, I proposed to her and she accepted and I had a ring for her and everything, but we never had an engagement party. And then uh, we broke up a few times during that. Um, from there, I felt like I wasn't Jewish. So I went to a rabbi, very big rabbi in Johannesburg, and I told the rabbi my story. And the rabbi said, Svi, you, that's my Hebrew, my Jewish name, Svi. So he says, Svi, you are born Jewish, you'll die Jewish. And he said, put on tefillin. I put on tefillin. I felt nothing. I didn't feel anything. And when I was uh, just turned 30, that's when I broke up with her. So I dated her from 27 until the age of 30.
0: And did you break up essentially because of that religious conflict?
1: So the religious conflict did have a part in it, but also she was very unstable. Like she didn't know, you know, she wanted to be with me. She didn't want to be with me. She was up. She was down. She was hot. She was cold. She said to me, you're not like my father. So I said, no, I'm not like your father. I'm me. And. Her father was a book, he was he did bets. He was a book, one that you went to do sports bets with. And I said, well, I've got my own business and he does sports bets. Yeah, but my father knows all the answers to singers and sports and this. I said, well, I'm not your father. So there was a lot of that, which I just, I, I couldn't take it. I, and she was also older than me, which was fine. I mean, the age wasn't a problem, but she just didn't know what she wanted. So. And I reckon Hashem, Play the part in it as well.
0: Okay, so you, you start putting on to fill in and that doesn't go anywhere. So, yeah. what's the next step?
1: So, the next step he got headhunted by a Greek guy okay. that called me up and said, um, I believe you're a locksmith, security person, you're very good at what you do. I said, Yes, I am. So, I said, Great, I need you to come to my supermarket to do some work for me. So I went to a supermarket and he had a supermarket very similar to my friends that I had, my other Greek friends. I did a bit of work there and he said to me, right, I need you to do work maybe at my home now as well. I said, sure. I went to his home. I gave him a quote with probably the next day. He accepted the quote. It was about 100,000 Rand, which is about $10,000. But this was in 2009. So it was a lot of money back then as well. And he said to me, I come to my shop and I'll give you a deposit. He says, I don't deal with cards or anything. I'll give you cash. I'm like, wow. Okay. I went to his shop and he opened up a safe and it just had cash, cash, full of cash in the safe. He gave me 50,000 Rand deposit, which was a lot of money in cash. I put it in all my pockets and we started the work at his home. And when we were working in his home, he had guns lying all over the home. I'll never forget. But five guns, like a gun in the kitchen, a gun in the bedroom, a gun um, Loaded in his and
0: not locked away, just
1: not locked away, just just loaded and lying on the kitchen table, lying on the just everywhere. Five guns. I I counted inside the home. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Then the next thing I started seeing ampules of drugs for bodybuilding, because I used to take steroids when I was younger, so I knew what it looked like. So I said to the cleaner, I said to her What's going on here? She says, oh, my boss is a drug dealer. I'm like, what? Because I knew he had the supermarket, but I think that was just a front. And he was also very, very big, tall, and he was like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like big. I said to my guys, let's work quickly and let's get out of his, his home. During that time, he comes up to me, says to me, listen, I need you to go to another business and break in for me and get me information from their safe and i said to him okay what business where is it and he and he told me and i basically didn't want to say no because the guys like huge and big so i said to him i'll see what i can do now the business he wanted me to break into was the business that i was working which is my greek friends that the guys that i was at school with the guys that did the hijacking stuff and all that now they you don't want to mess with them they're very connected like the biggest mafia, like like ever. And I went to them and I told them what this guy wants me to do. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll sort we'll sort it out. Now, this Greek guy that I was doing work at was like Pablo Escobar, like a form of Pablo Escobar, something like Hayek. And these guys were higher than him. They were like drug lords. So I left their office and I, and I went back to his house the next day to do the work. And he says to me, Did you tell the guys that I want you to break in that I want to break in? I said, No, I don't know what you're talking about. So he says to me, You Jews are dirt. You are pigs. You're the sand we walk or the sand we walk on. And he said, You better finish everything in my home. I'm going to America the next day. And if you don't finish Oh no, so this was this was on the Thursday. So he said to me on the Saturday, he's going to America. And if you don't finish, I'm going to kill you. You're like dead. So I went to the home on the Friday and um, I was doing, I was doing work in the home. And I said to my guys, listen, let's just work and let's just get out of here as fast as we can. And we we're busy, we we're busy doing you know all the work in there. And my one guy says to me, sorry, boss, I need something for the NVR. So I was like, hmm, that's strange. We should have it here with us. Go, go look for it inside the uh, van. So he goes and he says, I can't find it. So I went and I had a look.
0: What's an NVR?
1: An NVR is a network video recorder. It's for your camera system to record all the cameras onto the hard, like onto the box and NVR. Mm-hmm. So the hard drive was not there, the NVR was not there, and I knew something was not right. So I said to my guys, work outside the house, because in South Africa, they have electric fencing all around the homes. I said, carry on with electric fencing because. If I left him in the house, he had Rolex watches lying around. He had his guns lying around. He had so much things just lying around. I didn't feel comfortable with my staff being there without myself. So I told him to work outside and I'll go back to my place, to to my shop, to look for it. I went back to my shop. Couldn't find the stuff for the NVR. So I knew something was up. When I was at my shop, he phones me and he says to me, I'm going to kill you. Your, your guys have just robbed me. you dead. That's it. I was like, "What?" And he he spoke aggressively, like. So I thought, "That's strange, luck, like, You know, he wasn't there, and then all of a sudden, I go back, and uh, he says, "My guys have robbed him." So I'm like, I was a bit confused, and I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to come there, like, um now." And what happened was, when I was driving there, I phoned my friends who were police reservists and the Jewish security organization which they call cso in south africa and i called them and then i get to his house and i just see security and i see police and i see everyone just outside his house and i get out my car and as i get out my car a big white guy comes up to me with a, another big black man african man and they were normal clothes with bulletproof vests on and they said to me Where are your workers? I said, what's going on here? And the next thing, the Greek guy's running from his front door, coming towards me, he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And and I see all my tools lying outside the front of his house. So I'm like, what's going on here? Then the African black man and the white man said to me, you need to tell us where your guys live. And I said, "They're subcontractors, but I've got some details of them at my home, which I can go get. And I said, okay, go home, get it and come back. So I thought, okay, they're letting me go so I can at least tell my family.
0: So they actually robbed the Greek man? Is that what happened?
1: I think they robbed the Greek man, but I don't know if he were if he like planned it for them to like, rob him to set me up or whatever. So I'm not 100% sure, but they definitely robbed him. What happened was I went home to my place and I told my parents what was going on. I couldn't find anything of theirs. I drove back to the house and I said, I can't find any documentation, but I know where the one friend lives. They said, okay, great. I got in my car, they got in their car, and we drove to the house. They got out, they kicked the door in. So like, like in the movies, they kicked the door in. They had their machine guns, and the African woman opened up the lock, she, she, she was behind the door, and she had the baby on her back, and she started crying, and they pushed her in the house with the guns, and they told me to go. They said, I could go. So I, so I basically left and i remember on the saturday we went to to the river we had plans whatever to go to the river and then i phoned my friend who's a lawyer and i said to him i don't know like what to do he says don't worry about it the guy's got insurance we'll sort it out on monday so that weekend i was at at the river with my cousins and my friends and i wasn't having a great time because i didn't know like what's going on the sunday i went back to johannesburg sunday night and i went to sleep about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, my alarm goes off and I look out my window and I see like a black head going up and down by the electric fencing. And I'm like, wow. So I phoned the Jewish security company and I said, someone's trying to break into my home. They said, okay, stay in your home and we're coming now and stay on the phone. And we've also in South Africa, we had hard gates, very hard gates and high walls, high fences, so no one can see in from the street with electric fencing so this was 2009 in September time so it was spring so it was pretty cold like as well as the start of spring and I didn't listen to the CSO so I walked outside my house with the phone and I grabbed a mace spray which I put in my pocket as well and I went outside and I said who's there and the big white guy and the black guy that saw me at the Greek man's house. We're standing outside my gate. I couldn't see them and they couldn't see me. They just said to me, we found the guys who robbed the Greek guy. We want you to come to the police station to identify them. I said, are you serious? I said, it's two o'clock in the morning, mate. I said, I'll come during normal hours. I'm not coming at two o'clock in the morning. So they said, don't play games with us. You know, we're going to come in and take you. Just open up for us. So CSO said, ask them if they have a warrant for your arrest. So I said, do you have a warrant for my arrest? And they said, no, they don't, but open up. I said, I'm not going to open up. At this stage, CSO had sent their security guards from different African countries that were in the street. There was some police there. I don't know if they were real police or fake police, but they were were outside my my home. After about 20, 30 minutes, they forced my gate open. Now it takes 300 kilograms of force to force the gate open. Forced it open. Now at that time, I was staying with, with my parents and with my sister. I ran back to my back to the front door, and as I got there, the guard grabbed me and he picked me up by my top, and my feet were dangling in the air. And my parents woke up and my sister woke up, and they had all bulletproof vests and AK-47s. And my sister, father, mother came to, what you doing with our son? My sister was shouting and screaming, and they said to her, keep quiet, we're going to shoot you, we're going to kill you. And my mum was crying and shouting. My dad said, everyone relax, just let's talk about this. And the cops said no, and they, and they had the guns. They said, get inside us, we're going to shoot you and kill you. So, and they were in normal uniform, these guys, like just plain clothes with bulletproof vests. I was still on the phone to CSO when they, when they had me. That put me in an unmarked vehicle. the subcontractor's friend was next to me, and it was all black African guys and one white guy. as they got into the car because my cop was two in the morning. I remember that pulls out of my driveway, and the guy looks at me, the white guy, and he says, "You're dead, we're going to kill you. The blood just from my head just it felt like my soul just went out of my body, like I was thinking "How they're going to execute me." And I just remember in my mind saying the Shema, and I said the Shema about three or four times. And after that, a few minutes later, he looks at me and he says to me, you're going to sit in prison for 15 years. So it was like Hashem took away a death sentence and gave me a chance to still live. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, at least I'm, and then I started thinking in my mind, well, 15 years in prison, how old will my niece and nephew be? How old will I be? I'm not married. Will I be able to still get married, have kids, et cetera? All of this was going in my mind. And they were driving in the streets. The streets were dead, dead. Like it was like three o'clock in the morning, a Monday morning. And they dropped my subcontractor's friend at home. And he told them where I lived, these guys. And they took me to a police station and they handcuffed me to one of my subcontractors in the police station, and there were other guys sitting there on the floor in tears. And the next thing, the police came around and started punching me in my stomach and punching my subcontractor, going punching, punching, punching. I just remember it was so sore. Eventually, I fell forward, and they started elbowing me, like in my back. And then they started kicking me in my legs, punching, kicking, and the police took turns, just going punching, kicking, punching, kicking. After some time... I kind of got up. Uh, They said, shock him, shock him in Afrikaans, which is like, electrocute him. So I thought quickly and I said, I've got epilepsy. Please don't shock me. Please don't electrocute me. So the big white Afrikaans guy that came to take me away said, leave that man alone. Don't electrocute him. After that, they took myself, my ex-subcontractor and three or four other black guys and they put us in a police van. And I asked those guys, like, what happened? Like, why were they crying? They said they put bags over their heads, tied, tied it around, so they couldn't breathe. And they, like, urinated in their pants or they, like, um, you know, just crapped in their pants so like because they couldn't breathe. And they they basically tortured them. They electrocuted them in their body. So these guys were informers. Informers are ex-criminals working for the police. So they were ex-criminals working at the, uh, the police. And they were doing that to tell them that, like, they knew me, but they didn't know me. So that's why they are torturing them. And they drove us from that, hold, from that holding cell to another police station. And um, when I got to the other police station, they said to me, okay, fill out this form which says you've spoken to your lawyer, you know why you're being arrested, and you've had a phone call. I said, how can I sign this? None of these... I've had none of these so they said well the phone's not working so I said well let me use your mobile phone Ah the mobile phone we don't have money on it. So I said why am I being arrested? I said you know, so I need to speak to a lawyer After a while of arguing with him the guy shows me his gun and he says if you don't sign it, I'm going to shoot you So I signed the form they put me in a, in a holding cell with about 50 other guys. 50 or 60 of us were in one big cell. My parents didn't know where I was at this stage. I mean, you know, looking for me, they didn't know where I was. Eventually, they found me and um, I take thyroid medication. They brought me the thyroid medication. The police took it and then when I asked them for it, they said, you're not getting it and they crunched it up and they threw it away. They said, you can suffer. Then... They told me to come out and they said, the phone's working, right now. Now uh, you can use the phone. So I used the phone and um, I spoke to a lawyer and they also told me why I was being arrested. And then after that, I went back in again. And I was in there for one and a half days. After that, I went to court and they took us in a massive truck, like a big truck that could fit maybe 20 people in the truck there must have been about 60 of us in this truck and we were like sardines packed like sardines going in this truck to court in when we arrived in court they put us underground in cages like rats in these cages and i remember just speaking to people like asking them questions and that and then we went up into court and then when we were in court the judge said i'm accused one to accused five you'll be remanded for two weeks Now, I don't know what remanded meant, but I knew it didn't sound like I was going home. So I said, Jonah, I've done nothing wrong. Um, I'm a business person. And he said, keep quiet. I'm going to put you in contempt of court. My lawyer came to me and said, I'll handle it. My lawyer did nothing. A Jewish lawyer didn't do anything. So that was it. They took us back down again. And I knew that I wasn't going home. And I started asking more questions like, how do you survive in prison? What you need to do, a whole lot of questions, and guys were like telling me what to do with that and, and how to survive. And then the next thing, the truck took us to prison, which was a high prison called Deep Prison, which they had a nickname for it as Sun City. Deep Prison's got, I think, 10,000 prisoners. There's the men's prison, and then there's the women's prison. When we got to prison, I remember as like trying to see through the window of the truck. The gates opened up, and it went for a couple kilometers through different gates, and you hear dogs barking, guys with big machine guns. It got to the entrance of the prison, and when we got there, we had electronic fingerprints taken. So at the first prison, I got a little ID card, which was an ink fingerprint, and it said I did robbery. The second prison said I was an armed robber. So I was like, what? But I thought, you know what, I won't argue with them. I don't know, I just kept it. So, 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 so the second one, we had this card that said armed robbery, and I was inside there, and I remember Rabbi Michael Katz came to see me because it was before Rosh Hashanah with um, a woman from a Jewish organization, and they came to see me, and I remember I just burst out in tears. I said, I've done nothing wrong. You've got to get me out of here. And they said, we're gonna do everything you know we can. The rabbi blew the show because it was before Rosh Hashanah. And they gave me a massive hamper of, of it had like nuts in it, it had chocolate, it had chips, it had all different goodies in this hamper with the Jewish Life magazine. And he spoke to the one warden, the black warden, and he, I saw he gave him like money in his hand and he said to him, Please look after Sweet. The black warden took me, there was different sections, different doors, A, B, C, D. I think he took me to section C and he opened it up and he said, go inside. Now in section C, there was about 20 different cells. All he did was he just opened up section C and said, that's it, now go in. Now I went in there and we had to sit in the kitchen to get our tray and our cups. I was sitting there and I had this massive hamper in my hand and there were some colored guys which is half white half black so these guys came up to me from cape town and they're very dangerous and they had tattoos on their hands for their games like 27s uh, which means they uh, stab people and kill them like in like in like in their backs stab uh, there was guys was fast guns where they kill with guns in it and they said to me i want that packet of chips that's in your bag so i said to him well i want something keep myself warm like a blanket or something he says hey yeah you're slim like you're very clever um, i was actually very scared because these guys are dangerous gang members but in prison they said you don't show fear so he says All right, i'll bring you like a towel a beach towel i said okay so he says give me the chips i said no no you bring me the towel and i'll give you the chips when we trade at the same time they said yeah yes buy a slim which is clever you are very clever So he comes with the beach towel, I give him the chips, he gives me the beach towel, and off he goes. Then there were two white guys, big Afrikaans guys, mopping the floors. And at this stage now, I had a tray, which they gave me, a little toothpaste, a little toothbrush, a piece of soap that you normally clean the clothes with for our body, and a face cloth to wash myself and dry myself with, and one toilet roll. That's everything that they gave to us, the train and the cup. No knives, no forks, not even plastic. We have to use our hands. And I had all of that with me. And these two white guys look at me and they say, hey, boy, you're coming to sleep with us in our cell. I looked at them and I thought, wow, I don't know. These guys are big. I don't know what they're going to do to me. But for some reason, I said, okay. I said, I'll go with you guys to your cell. I had everything. Then after a few minutes, I went with them to the cell i get into the cell. There was about 80 people in the cell, eight zero. So I thought it was like the movies. In the movies, you see one person, two people sharing a cell. Here, there was 80 in one cell. Now, the cell wasn't big at all. There was like bunk beds. So the bottom were all single beds, and the top were double, but uh, uh, kind of a bit bigger than the, than the bottom. So guys were sleeping on the floor, on a concrete floor, under the beds guys on top of the beds were three guys sharing a bed. And the singles were mostly single guys. And there's a guy in the cell called Rasta. He was in charge of the cell. He killed his girlfriend, chopped her in pieces, put her in a rubbish bag and threw her down the river. And he was in charge of our cell. He had long dreadlocks. His eyes were bloodshot red from the drugs that he smoked. And he saw my big hamper and he said to me, You and I will share that hamper and we'll keep it here. And there was another colored guy that was at the back of the cell. And he saw me as well he says, hey boy, you're sleeping in in my bed. And I said to him, I'm not your boy and I'm not sleeping in your bed. So I was like, wow, you're very brave. And then Rasta said to me, he said, guys, just leave it. And this other guy was determined that I was gonna sleep in, 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 in his bed. So I said to him, you know what, mate, I've actually got bird flu because I could see like they were going to like, do something to me. So the bird flu. So they said, where did you get that from? So I said, uh, i got that from Brazil and I went to Brazil and uh, the one guy said, oh, tell me about Brazil. And I told him, he's like, Yep, this guy's been to Brazil. I think he's got bird flu. So they told me to cover my face. And Rasta said to me, OK, what are you going to pay for your bed to have your own single bed? So I said, what do you want? So he says, I want your shirt. I had a Manchester t-shirt on. He took my Manchester shirt. I had a chain with the Mug and Dovid. He took the chain, but he let me keep the Mug and Dovid. He took my ring. He took my watch. And he said, we'll share the hamper for your own bed. Now, I had my own single bed next to Rasta's bed. Uh, There was one toilet in the whole cell for 80 of us. The toilet was right next to the basin. So when we brushed our teeth and washed our dishes, the toilet was right there. There was no door on the toilet, just like a blanket. Three showers where the water just kind of dripped, cold water. We only got fed twice a day. We got fed breakfast and dinner, no lunch. And we weren't, re- we weren't allowed to leave the cell, except when we got our food, and we have to come straight back to the cell. Now, for the first couple of days, I never touched... The, the, the food, the food was terrible. It was like breakfast was like four slices of brown bread, a massive pot of butter that they put on the plate like for the bread, some like jungle oats or something, a hard boiled egg, that was breakfast. Dinner was four slices of brown bread, a piece of meat that was black, green, smelled bad, an apple and a hard boiled egg. And they used to give us powder to put in water for our drink, which we had to mix with our fingers. And the bread, we had to use our fingers to put the butter on the bread or like a phone card or something. I hardly ate that food. And after a couple of days, they wanted to send me to a cell with all the sick people because of my bird flu. And I said, you know, guys, I don't actually have bird flu. I was just lying to you. And they said, in this cell, you don't lie, you don't rape anyone, and you don't do gym, you don't exercise. And they said, we're going to give you one chance. And if you do that again, we'll kill you. I said, I'm sorry. And they let me stay there and I took the mask off. but Rasta, And I wasn't eating because the food was terrible. And Rasta said, mate, if you don't eat in here, you're going to die. I remember after a couple of days, we went to the kitchen left to go get our food. And I had a beanie on my head. And the guards came and they smacked me in my head. Because I wouldn't take the beanie off. They're talking to me in African language. I didn't understand what they were saying. So a few times they hit me in my head. And eventually someone said, boss, they're telling you to take your beanie off. So I took my beanie off. And I saw a white guy standing outside. And he says to me, are you Jewish? So I thought if I tell him I'm Jewish, he might kill me. But whatever i got to lose, I'm in prison. So I said, yeah, I'm Jewish. He said, you know, you can get kosher food. I'm like, no way. He says, yep. Yeah says come we'll organize your kosher food kosher food was a tray with mixed up of chicken rice pumpkin a loaf of bread a liter of milk a lettuce cucumber nuts two-minute maggie noodles everything i literally had all the prisoners coming to my cell all the gangsters that saying to me can we give you cigarettes for your food now i don't smoke but cigarettes is a currency in prison so i was giving them food for cigarettes and i was buying stuff with the cigarettes and there was a big nigerian guy in my cell as well massive he was a drug dealer big time and he told everyone in this cell not to touch me i'm the son of god i'm jewish i had all the prisoners asking me to pray for them i should pray for them because you know like i've got all this good stuff jewish food and i'm thinking well i'm not i'm not uh, religious anything with pray for them And I used to say the shema about 10 times a night, I'd say the shema. I used to sleep like this with hands over my face because bed bugs and cockroaches and that used to fall on top of me. And also just in case if someone tried to like rape me, I would feel them pulling you know, like pulling my arms or whatever. I got bitten by bed bugs and different things. And I, and I remember going to the nurse to ask her for some medication for the bed bugs. She said, mate, you are white trash. You are the, at the bottom of the ocean. She said, you, like also you're like the sand we walk on. You're worse than a dove, she says. I said to her, well, you know, like that was many, many, many years ago. I said, to, I said to her, I was never around in the apartheid days. I said, I'm a businessman. All I want is ointment for my body. She says, no, you can suffer. So I said, please, all I want is ointment. My body is sore. I've got all these bed bites on my arms and that. Eventually, after some time of arguing with her, she took the cream and she poured some of it in a little plastic bag and she threw it at me. She said, "Here, take the cream. You are trash, basically." And there was another black guy with me. I remember from Zimbabwe, so he wasn't from South Africa. He was from another African country, and he had all like marks in his face from someone like cutting him in there. And he wanted stuff as well. And she also wouldn't give him. She said, "You're an alien. You're not South African." And she gave him a hard time as well so eventually we went back to our cell i remember like in the morning we had to sit straight up and our backs couldn't touch like the bed we had to be completely straight uh for counting to see that we're in the cell for about 45 minutes we had to sit like this and then when we got our food we had to like sit down in the ground but not touch like we had to like crunch down like on the ground and sit in a position like that for about an hour for them to count our heads before we went into the cell. And the one day I tried to escape to use the phone and the wardens called us and we had to do push-ups, a hundred push-ups, but not normal. Our feet were like kind of that position.
0: Angled. Yeah.
1: Angled, we correct, with our feet ra- on the bars up. and we were angled. And if we stopped doing it, they would take a T button and hit our stomachs. And obviously I didn't do a hundred, I couldn't. So we got hit a couple times until we did a hundred push-ups. I remember seeing another guy get stabbed in the neck. A white guy was at the cell, and they took a pen or something and stabbed him in his neck. And he went to hospital. And then, he, then when he came back, they put him in solitary confinement because I think for his own protection, because otherwise black guys would have killed him again. Oh, well, they would have tried to kill him. And I needed toilet he paper got as well. stabbed
0: by other cellmates?
1: Yeah, here the white guy got stabbed by black guys, by the um, cellmates, because um, he was like, I, I, like out of the cell, there was about 72 black guys and eight white guys.
0: And like, who made you do cell. the push-ups, the guards or the cellmates?
1: Uh, the guards. The cellmates were very good to me. They wanted me to like pray for them, and like I had the food. Right. So it, was, it, was all, it was all the guards. I remember right. um, I had one toilet roll, as I said in the, in, in the beginning. I needed another toilet roll, and the guards said to me, mate, you can suffer. I said, please, yes, $20, $20 for a toilet job. They said, you can give us $50. You can suffer. You can use your shirt to wipe yourself with, which I did. I had to because I had no toilet paper. So like, literally after a couple of days, I had to use my, my, my singlet in there. And I remember when I, the second time when I escaped to use the phone, they didn't catch us. And I spoke to my mom and I said to her, like, what's happening? And she said, no, within about seven days, you're going to be out of here. And seven days came, nothing happened.
0: So and how long were you already in there?
1: So when I phoned her, when I got the phone, I was in there for about five days, I think. And then she said, no, like in, in another two days, seven days you'll be out of here. Seven days came, I wasn't out of there. I escaped again, I think during about 10 days, after being in there 10 days, and I used the phone again. And she said to me, they've lost your paperwork. They can't find it, I don't know what's happening. I said, well, if I don't get out of here soon, I'm going to hang myself. I'm literally going to hang myself. The living conditions are terrible. People are getting stabbed in the necks. People are taking drugs. It's just not a good thing to be in. To Long story short, after that, I couldn't use the phone again. My parents tried to come see me, but they wouldn't let them into the prison because they never had their driver's license with them. So they wouldn't let my parents in. Uh, After about three weeks, they said, okay, we're going to take you to court. Actually, the night before, there was a, another guy next to us, and they were banging the beds, banging, banging, because they've got like a button in the in the cell that you can push to call the wardens. But apparently, they disconnected all those buttons because they don't want to be disturbed. So some guy had an epileptic fit, and they were banging the beds to call the wardens, and he actually died because they never came in his tongue, but his tongue, the guy died. And another guy got food poisoning from a rat. There was like a dead rat in the food. And he got food poisoning and he died as well. Quite a lot happened before I actually went to to court. And then when I went to court, I got bail. And bail was about $250, which my parents paid, the bail. I remember saying to my parents, take my clothes that I'm wearing and burn them. Burn these clothes from... Everything from the prison, I just burn it. And I remember I, was, I got out a few days before Yom Kippur. I remember going to shul on Yom Kippur and just praying to Hashem, just letting my heart out, praying to Hashem. And then, um, after Yom Kippur, I went and I bought tzitzit and I put Sit on and I started wearing a cap. My journey started very slow, becoming baltruva, but at a good pace. So what happened was I, I had to go to court for five months back and forth to court so i I said to my mom in that time period i want to go to israel i want to run and go to israel because i trust no one i can't trust the police i can't trust my lawyer i can't trust the judge i want to go to israel my mom said you're not going to israel you're going to stay and go to court you're on bail every day you're going to go to court until you know your name gets cleared so every day we went to court for about five months And we just sat in court because they never, ever called us, but we had to appear in court. We had to go to court. For a couple of hours, we had to go to court, Monday to Friday. Obviously not Saturdays and Sundays, but Monday to Friday. Then after five months of going to court, I remember, I think it was a Friday before Shabbat, we were at court. And there was the SPP, the Senior Public Prosecutor, came to my barrister. And I remember hearing him say to my barrister, your client's done nothing. We've looked at everything. There was fraudulent stuff against him. He's innocent. He's free to go. That was one of the best days. I had tears in my eyes. I was crying like so much luck. I went up to my barrister and I hugged him. And he said, you're going to go into the courtroom. You're going to be free to go. And you're going to go get your bail money. I think I didn't even get the bail money. It was before Shabbat. I got it on like on the Monday. And then my barrister and lawyer said to me, right, do you want to sue the state? And I said, yes. And then they said to me, do you want to sue the Greek guy? You can get millions from the Greek guy. And I said, no. I said, the guy's are, it's like suing public Escobar. You only sue someone that can, he's got everyone in his pocket. And I said, no way. And then the Greek guy called me up with a lawyer or someone of his and said, is everything okay? What's happening? We're sorry, are you gonna sue us? And I said, no, 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 I'm not gonna sue nothing. I just wanna leave everything. And then when I said that, he saw that I was very weak. A couple of weeks or a month later, I was walking in the area where he would hang out. And I was walking with one of my subcontractors bar like a Woolworths. And he was upstairs at the gym and he saw me and he looked at me. I was downstairs, he was upstairs. He said, I'm gonna kill you, you're dead. And the next thing I started running to my car, and I think he ran downstairs and I got in my car and I drove off. Another time I was driving somewhere and he saw me and he tried to drive me off the road into my car. So I thought to myself, wow, this is like what am I gonna do? I can't live like this. We went to court to 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 the high courts, and at the high courts it was my barrister, and it was the barrister for the government, for for the police. And the judge let my barrister speak first. And then after that, he let the barrister speak for the police. And the policeman that was in the, in the prison, the, the one that told me to sign the forms, was sitting there looking at me laughing. He was smiling and laughing, just looking at me. When it was time for the barrister to speak for the police, the barrister said, Your Honor, we have nothing to say. Please award everything to, to myself. Award everything to, to speak. And in the forms, I read the forms, the detective that was working on the case took $300 from the Greek guy. He called my lawyers and said to them, if you give me $500, I'll let Svi go out of prison. I'll lose the papers. And my lawyer said, no, we won't do that. The policeman got paid $50. So he got paid $50 to arrest me. And the detective got paid $300. So that's what they got paid. So I got a payout for the one and a half days or two days in the holding cell. For the prison, I never ever sued because the lawyer and barrister that I had weren't good enough, they weren't strong enough to take on that case. And when I came to Australia, they said to me, okay, well, now we've kind of worked something out, you've got to come back to South Africa. And I said, there's no ways I'm coming back to South Africa. And then when I did my balt journey, I was going to just a normal shul, like a traditional Jewish shul I was, I was going to. And then I decided, let me try Chabad. And I went to a Chabad shul. And when I was davening there, I thought to myself, hey, if I grow my beard and I wear the black cat and glasses, the Greek guy won't recognize me. So that's what I did. I grew my beard, massive beard. And people said, wow, such a big beard. I said, this side's for Fleishik and this side's for Milchik. <laughs> they liked that. In. And I looked like a, probably like a um, terrorist because I had dark, dark skin, big beard, the glasses. Before I had that, when I, was, when I used to walk to Shul, the Greek guy would drive down that road. And a few times I was walking up and he was driving down like opposite. And he said, I'm going to kill you like this while he was driving, but he couldn't get out the car. When I had my beard, my glasses, my hat, he never recognized me, not one bit. In 2009, I stayed in South Africa until 2012. That's when I got unlawfully arrested. And didn't really work much because I didn't trust anyone. So I just worked within the Jewish community. I had PTSD, big time PTSD. And I remember the one day I was sitting at my dad's cousin's house and her son is Israeli and he's that like kind of an Israeli mafia in South Africa and he always wanted to know what happened to me and I never told him the story and then he comes in one day and he says to me by the way I was having a meeting with someone and they told me that they're going to kill you and I said what this is a Greek guy and then I knew straight away that he was not mucking around he, he was telling the truth as it is, they said, yep, the Greek guy's planning and you're going to die, mate. They're planning and they're going to kill you some way or, or, or another. Once he said that, I knew I had, I had to get out of there. And I didn't have much money, so I sold my car that I had to get a plane ticket to Australia. I had a visitor's visa that was still valid. Came to Australia with a suitcase with 20 kilograms of clothes, $200 Australian in my pocket knowing no one except the one rabbi that was in Melbourne and I arrived in Melbourne at about 10 o'clock at night I bought a phone card and I paid for a guy to drive me to, to, to the area in Melbourne like from the airport so that cost $110 for all of that so I had $90 left to my name and my clothes for three months I stayed at the rabbi's house they gave me breakfast lunch and dinner a roof over my head and I worked for three months cash in hand. I worked packing so I worked doing deliveries for a guy from Canada and he paid me fifteen dollars per delivery. So I used to do three deliveries a day because I didn't know the area. So I made forty-five dollars a day. And I said to him, It's a bit it's not enough. Can can you give me some other work? So I said, sure, you can pack boxes in my factory for ten dollars an hour. I made eighty bucks a day. I was sending money home to my parents because they didn't have much money. I was eating bread, milk, not having much and whatever dinner they gave me for, for dinner, I was grateful. And then after three months, I had work rights in Australia and then I started working. But I was charging very little. I was charging like $20 a service call and people in the community were just grabbing me. And the reperson said to me, why are you charging $20? I said, that's 200 rand. She said, you can't work it out like that. She said, you, "You you can barely buy a kosher burger for twenty dollars, and you're charging twenty bucks." So I was suffering major PTSD. After a while, um, I set myself up, and uh, in Australia, I uh, opened up a shop here, and I've got two businesses. if you can see a security company and a maintenance company. So I've got two different businesses. I have people from Colombia working for me, Australian people working for me, and some Israeli guys working. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey, and it's, but it's been good. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm religious now as well. I keep Shabbat, and I go to shul every Shabbos, and yeah, it's, it's been good. What
0: a story. I do have follow-up questions. First of all, why did you reach out and share your
1: story? Good question. I'm hoping that my story can help people to, to, to reach out, I guess, like, like you know, because like, America, there's a lot of people in America and, and, and in New York, especially, you've got a massive Jewish community. Now, when I've given my story, I've touched at least one or two people, which is, can be generations of people, like where rabbis or rabbisons have, kids have fallen off the dera. They, they don't keep Shabbos anymore or, you know, they've taken their beards off, they do this, do that. And... My story is just inspiring in terms of, like, the miracles. Sorry, I saw miracles in prison, so much miracles that I strongly believe in Hashem. And I wasn't born religious or anything. And so the reason why I reached out to you was that because hopefully I can inspire in religious way, not, not, not religious way. I mean, I had started with nothing in Australia, with nothing, with 100 bucks. And now I've got a wife, I've got two children, you know, I've got a beautiful home. I've got a lot of things. So hopefully it can help, you know, whether it helps one person or 10 people.
0: When did you meet your wife in Australia?
1: Probably after about three or four years of being in Australia.
0: Were you set up?
1: So when I met my wife, I was a permanent resident, not a citizen. And I said to my wife, I want to be a citizen before I marry you. So I'm a citizen myself, not through you. When I was a citizen, I married my wife. I was kind of set up, but then, you know, with my wife, we made it bigger. We made everything bigger together, yeah. Would you
0: ever go back to South Africa? Do you ever see your family?
1: So my parents live in Australia. I brought my parents here. I've got a sister that I brought here as well but I've got one sister that still lives in South Africa with my niece and nephew. I haven't been back in like 10 years or I'll rather my sister comes here. It's nothing to go back there for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just uh, very unusual.
1: Yeah. Like, like, like in South Africa, there, there have been people that have been unlawfully arrested, but not like my story, like nothing like mine. Like I've never heard when I tell people my story, the whole room is quiet. Like literally, if I talk for an hour to hour, everyone's quiet listening. And then they ask questions. It's just, they say I should write a book, you know, and I should, I should make a movie, like a Netflix movie about it. Yeah, it's, it's...
0: Did you, were you ever concerned when you started working for these people or you had a no questions, no tell policy?
1: When I was working with them and doing stuff with them, I was in my okay. 20s and I was kind of like, how can I say young and and like thought wow this is pretty cool maybe whatever like but then I also saw like these guys were serious like I mean like there was a guy that stole from them in the supermarket and they took him to the back of the supermarket and they beat him until he was like finished the guy was they beat him and I was like wow I knew that I knew you could never do anything across these guys or do anything because you'd be in trouble but yeah, I guess it might have crossed my mind, but I just... Ignored it. Ignored it, correct, yeah.
0: And back to your first story that was you know a little questionable <laughs> when I was listening, when you said you were hired to bring the truck merchandise to yeah. the, these people. Those were your friends in school? Like They were involved in crime and that was normal?
1: So Yeah, so those are my friends in school. They basically also dropped out of school like like very early and um, it was it? well in South Africa. There's a lot of people that do things that that are not honest, like dishonest, like and 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 like wives will just turn their heads, I guess, because like as long as the money's coming in and they've got the, got the credit cards to spend, I don't think they're asking questions. And the husbands will be doing stuff this way that way. Yeah, I thought to myself, well, you know, these guys were very big and like you know, nothing would happen and. Yeah, they had had unlimited money, basically, and I was just, um, it it was wrong what I was doing. I mean, I wasn't stealing anything, but I was just bringing, like, they were telling people to give them stuff, and then I would just, I, I was the driver, I was the delivery man, but I knew what they were doing.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Francisco show, please do reach out. I love hearing from you. Join the
1: WhatsApp discussion group and have a great week.